Hello, and a very warm welcome to The Roadmap, the podcast from the commercial technology team here at Bristow's. My name's Rob Powell, an associate here in the technology team, and I'll be your host for this episode of The Roadmap, which today is all about software development, and specifically some practical tips on how to approach a software development project from a customer's perspective. Joining us today to discuss this topic is Adrian Sim, a partner in our tech team here, who has worked on countless software development projects over the years. How are you doing, Adrian? I'm good, thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me along. Yeah, great to have you here. So without further ado, we're going to kind of dive into this. Um, and I just wanted to start by setting the scene, I guess, and, and to discuss a bit about the context in which you're seeing these software development projects occur for our, for our clients. Well, I guess, Rob, where we're seeing the most happen is in this big digital transformation space. So lots of businesses transforming the way they operate to modernize, make them more efficient, uh, more technology driven. And while a lot of them are able to sort of leverage out of the box software solutions that are out there, there are still some that need to be built. And, you know, if you're, I guess, a lucky customer going through a digital transformation, that might just mean some configuration to the software products. But more often than not, you know, businesses are quite specific and they need sort of bespoke work. So some customization often does happen in these sort of big digital transformation projects. It, it is pretty rare that we see anything sort of built from scratch. So generally, you're leveraging off a third-party software solution but having to customize it. And I guess more and more, we're seeing these projects not just going with one supplier. They're sort of multi-source looking at best of breed vendors for different components. So there's quite a lot of additional complexity beyond just doing a single software development deal. Yeah, and, and that's that's a point that um, I think it'd be really useful to d- discuss later on. But, um, you know, we're really keen for this podcast to be as practical as possible. And so just kind of starting from the beginning, what's what's the best piece of kind of practical advice that you would give to a customer who's about to embark on one of these software development projects to to realize that that digital transformation that you're talking about i mean i would say be very realistic about where you're at with your business's journey and the internal resource and expertise that you have that you can actually bring to the project as this is going to drive how you get to that endpoint in the most efficient and you know successful way you know if this particular digital transformation project you're embarking on is part of a broader you know business transformation is the whole business on board you know a big piece of success is change management and that's not you know a contractual thing that you can do but you you need to factor it in you know we've worked with clients in the past that are embarking on a big digital transformation and things haven't gone so smoothly and that's partly because the business hasn't been brought along on the journey. Not everyone sort of bought in, not all the stakeholders, you know, are agreeing with the way this is going to happen. And the project becomes very, very start stop. So getting that sort of internal alignment is important. And then being realistic about what capability you have internally. And one of the things which I mentioned before with this being a sort of multi-source environment is the question about who's actually going to integrate it and that's going to have a very big influence on the type of contract that you'll need and the type of provisions that you'll use because you know sometimes you'll still have projects where there's one supplier that's going to prime everything so you only need one contract and they carry a lot of the risk but these days in this sort of multi-source environment often the customer doesn't want to pay the premium for having a prime or a you know a siam role 
and they end up being the integrator themselves. And, and there is a real question about whether or not this, the customer in this instance has the skills and the time and the resources to actually take on that integration role. So it may save them some money in the short term, but longer term for the success of the project. I think those questions need to be asked and answered before um, before you kick off a big project like this. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and, and to pick up on that point, and I guess one you've made earlier, that lots of these digital transformations that we see these days are not, as you say, a simple kind of single supplier doing doing a build. It's, you know, you see that our, our clients' CTOs and CIOs are going for, as you call it, the best of breed or of the different SaaS or PaaS providers, for example. And they're trying to create a digital ecosystem that the software development projects then need to feed into. So I'm, I'm guessing the answer is is yes, but has this created some new issues for us to deal with? It is. And look, for anyone listening that's embarked on any type of home renovation project, having lots of different suppliers, you know, a particular builder putting down the flooring, a different one painting the walls, a different <laughs> one installing windows, you'll always get a lot of finger pointing. And this is no exception in the IT digital transformation world. You know, people saying, oh, this wasn't our fault. Someone else didn't do something properly and that's going to impact our ability to deliver the services and the cost to the customer. So what I would say is you really need a very clear demarcation of who's doing what. And it's got to be more detailed than just a sort of straightforward racy. You want to look at specific integration points, where the handoffs are happening between the suppliers, what access... Uh, each supplier needs the other systems and also thinking about the comfort you'll need to give to suppliers in that context because not all of them are going to want to be sharing IP and confidentiality with each other. And then from a contractual point of view, a lot of attention needs to be placed on, you know, the relief provisions and dependencies because it's fair that, you know, a supplier will have access to relief if the customer doesn't do certain things or if other third-party suppliers that feed into their deliverables don't do certain things. So that interaction, you know, with operating level agreements, cooperation provisions, any SIAM provisions that you have in the contract are going to be quite important. And from a customer perspective, you know, agreeing that is great and it gives you some clarity, but you need to take that next step and make sure that things are backed off. So if supplier A is trying to claim relief um, for something that hasn't been done, and it's down to supplier B, you need to make sure that you can recover the amounts that are paid, you know, through a change note or something like that from supplier B who may have caused the issue. And there are quite a few different sort of contractual mechanisms, you know, a direct mechanism or some type of deemed direct loss provision that can help you do that. And then I guess the other sort of issue or something that can help resolve some of these issues is making sure that your governance structure works really well and is sort of suited to this sort of multi-party environment. And one thing that I would say we would always suggest for customers is some sort of fix first, settle later mechanism where, you know, the parties that you instruct just have to get on to resolve the issue and you can resolve, you know, who effectively pays or picks up the cost for that a little bit later. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that trying to manage those integrations and handoffs between the parties, it can be really difficult. And especially from a contractual perspective, our end, getting all those contracts, you know, potentially lined up at the same time can be a real challenge um, if, if that's not the way it kind of naturally develops as part of the project. And, and without getting too legal, Adrian, don't you get into a bit of a minefield here from a liability perspective with, with having so many different parties in, in the ecosystem? Yeah, you can. And and as I said, that real risk of sort of finger pointing is the one that looms largest. But there, there are ways in which you can navigate it. 
firstly, as I said, be very clear about responsibilities in respect of those third-party components. So, you know, who are you getting your underlying warranties from? What To what extent are you covered by, you know, an IP indemnity? And are there gaps between what you're getting from the different suppliers? So you need to be very cognizant of, you know, are you contracting separately or are you getting this through a third party? And if you're getting it through a third party, does it flow all the way through? Um, you know, ideally from a legal perspective and from a, you know, from a lawyer's perspective, it's much easier just to have a single supplier. So you have one prime, one throat to choke, as they say. If there's an issue, you just go to one person. But as I said, there are so many deals these days that isn't an appropriate model because there's either a risk premium that you have to pay for and customers may not want to do that. Um, so there's a commercial question about is it worth it, you know, or can we use some of these other mechanisms to manage that risk? And, you know, some of those which I mentioned, operating level agreements, cooperation agreements, things like that, in addition to having very clear demarcation about who's responsible for what and how those integration points will work, um, you know, that's an option. And I just just wanted to, I guess, take a, a step back. When we're looking at these projects, they're often, or well, there's typically kind of two different types of, of software development methodologies that we see, those being waterfall and agile. Um, could you first off just, just give us a very quick recap on what these methodologies are? And do you have any suggestions for our listeners as to which is better when, when kind of approaching these projects? Yeah. Um, so I guess let's start with the traditional one, which is, I guess, a waterfall methodology. And so this is a very sequential process where, you know, you'll go through a requirements gathering phase and then the supplier will put together a high level design followed by a low level or detailed design. Then they'll build the SIS IT system, they'll test it, and then you go through an acceptance process to, to sign it off. But this often means that there's sort of no tangible coding till quite a long way down this process, which can be many months or even years later before sort of go live and you're actually seeing the results in a big bang kind of way. So, you know, there are some cons with that in that you don't get to see how things are progressing. Um, but contracts, I guess, are traditionally drafted to fit this sort of waterfall methodology. And that's because this is sort of how the construction industry works. And a lot of IT contracts have their genesis from, you know, construction contracts. But what we're finding these days is a lot of customers prefer a more agile way of working and utilizing some type of agile methodology. And this is where for a very sort of small or contained set of functionality, you go through that full sequence that I just mentioned through, you know, requirements gathering, the design, build, test, accept phase, but you compress that into a four-week contained sprint, or it can be, you know, two weeks or six weeks, but a short period where all of that functionality um, that you've decided to put into that sprint is delivered. And that means the business gets quite a lot of tangible value very, very quickly because you're seeing working software from the outset. But I would just say that I don't think there are many great contracts that deal with agile software development out there. And as I said, it's because, you know, historically contracts have been developed for the different type of method or fit better with that waterfall methodology. And contracts tend to need sort of certainty on three angles, you know, time, price, and scope. And agile software development tends to lead to, you know, a need for flexibility in at least one of those three elements. So to, to your question, Rob, as to which methodology is better, I'm going to give a very loyally answer and to say it depends. But what I would say is that, um, you know, 
you should think about whether or not you have the internal stakeholders to manage a per- or to work with a certain type of methodology. Think about the level of maturity that you have as a customer about this project. Like, do you know what your requirements are? Do you have user stories already in mind that the new technology needs to work with? Um, or is that part of the you know discovery process that you need to go through that you need a supplier to help you out with? So, if you do need that type of support, maybe an agile methodology is a good way of doing it because I guess that comes with slightly less certainty about where you're going to end up. And as I said, less certainty about price, time and scope sometimes. Um, and so there are a lot of challenges with taking that. And maybe, you know, maybe that's a good topic for a future future roadmap episode. Uh, I'm not sure, Rob, but, you know, it, it's... It's, it's suitable where you don't have as much clarity. But, you know, if you are a business that you know exactly what you need, you can translate that into a specification, then actually the waterfall method might be good, even, even though it's a little bit unfashionable at the moment, because you will have a bit more certainty over, you know, time, scope and price, which, which can be really helpful, you know, when you're having to manage internal stakeholders and internal budgets. So, it is really horses for courses. But one thing I guess we do see a lot more of these days in, in either case, is a framework agreement that underpins all of it, so that you don't have to commit to the full project right from the outset. You can call them off in different in different stages. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you've you've obviously you know dealt with a huge number of these contracts over the years. What are some of the most sort of common pitfalls that you're aware of, and that you would always counsel customers to, to watch out for and and make sure they provide for in their software development contracts? Yeah. Well, I personally would love, you know, arguing about liability and indemnity provisions all day. (laughs) Usually customers are not that interested in that. And to be honest, um, for me, the two areas where I would suggest customers really focus their attention are on acceptance provisions and also just the back end of the contract generally. Um, So on acceptance, I think be very, very clear about how it works. Sometimes as a customer, you can get away with having very, very subjective acceptance criteria. But I guess the more market position is having sort of objective, balanced acceptance criteria. And what I would really recommend is like a a lot of engagement with, you know, the business and the ultimate users. So their requirements are factored in. And one thing that customers often don't build into their contracts or, or into sort of consideration through these acceptance processes are having, you know, this concept of an allowable number of defects and that can be quite helpful, even though on the face of it doesn't sound great for a customer. Um, I guess it's just giving, you know, contractual coverage to that realization that things don't need to be perfect before you go live. And you should be realistic about balancing the business need of going live over, you know, the ideal state, which is sort of perfection with no defects at all. But what flows from that is making sure that you've thought about, well, okay, if we do have an allowable number of defects, who's going to fix the SEV2, SEV3, SEV4 issues? You know, whose cost is it going to be at and how quickly do you need to get it done? The, the other aspect which I mentioned is just the back end generally, like where all the schedules and the technical details sit. Because, and I know you've had some of our sort of dispute colleagues on uh, the roadmap previously, but one, well, I guess the key area, I think, where these types of technology projects end up in dispute is really in the schedules. It's not about the specific drafting of the liability or warranty provisions. It's really a scope issue. So being very clear about who's doing what is 
you know, critical and lawyers can help in that process. Obviously, we can help in the front end with sweeper clauses that pick up a few extra things, but also in the back end. You know, we've seen a lot of these types of projects, so we can ask the right questions, probe, you know, the internal stakeholders about what they're really asking for and get into a bit of detail in the back end because we've seen a lot of this before. So helping out with making sure your service description is accurate, the SLAs and charging mechanisms not only are very clear but actually work from a commercial and technical perspective and hopefully these types of things, you know, if you're aware of, you you will get, uh, you will hopefully get to a position where you can avoid those disputes down the line. Yeah, it's such an important point and and as you touched on, you know, in previous episodes, uh, we've discussed this with our um, litigation colleagues around, you know, the back end is typically where the disputes arise. So really can't stress enough that suitable time and attention should be given to those to to try and avoid those disputes happening down the line. We've talked thus far, you know, typically about build contracts, as this is obviously, you know, focusing on software development this episode. Um, But do you have any views about looking forward to the the ongoing support and maintenance that's then provided um, and what customers need to watch out for in this regard? Because, you know, typically these kind of support and maintenance provisions might be built into the build contract rather than being a separate agreement. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question, Rob, because I think sometimes people don't sort of think about the end when they're on the st- at the start of a journey like this. So I sort of mentioned it a little bit in the context of acceptance testing. But the main question I would suggest customers think about is if there is an issue, you know, where does it get fixed? You'll have warranty provisions, or hopefully you will have warranty provisions in your build contract where that could be the appropriate place for things to get sorted, or it could be under sort of ongoing application maintenance and support provisions. And those could be either in the same build contract in a separate contract. And if it's in a separate contract, it could be with the same supplier or a different supplier. So there are a few different permutations to that. And I guess all of those options are possible. But the key thing, I guess, the customer should be thinking about from the outset is how important is it that you need to get these issues resolved and does it have to happen really quickly? And that might lead you to slightly different regimes, which we've seen before. So maybe for, you know, SEV1, SEV2s, you have a different, you know, support and maintenance regime. But for SEV3 and 4s, it's something that you can deal with later on because, you know, the timescales aren't going to be so so crucial for those. So think about whether or not service levels should apply, which you often won't get in a sort of warranty fix situation under your build contract. But obviously, as I said, for SEV 1s and SEV 2s, maybe you do need some type of extra commitment around the speed at which they get done. And similarly, um, if it doesn't get fixed under you know your build contract, or sorry, if it does get fixed under your build contract, think about that interaction with whatever's left of your warranty period. Like, should it refresh? Or do you just get to run out, you know, the balance of the warranty period, which I think is probably the more market standard. You don't see too many suppliers offering sort of refreshing warranty on their on their fixes, although customers would love that. And then commercially, you want to be really clear uh, about which one it's coming under because you don't want to pay twice, right? So you don't want to be paying for warranty support, but then also paying your AMS provider to be fixing things and having to pay both. Uh, either two different suppliers or the same supplier under both contracts to sort out the same issue. And then finally, I just wanted to end with what I guess is is the million-dollar question. It's uh, one of the most crucial aspects for a customer, which is delivering these projects on time. So what are the key practical contractual ways 
of ensuring your software development project is delivered on time and that you've got a happy board? That's, that's a tough <laughs> question. That's what we often get asked for by, by customers, Rob. And I think the one that's most obvious is like having really key milestones. So having those fixed periods of time where certain deliverables need to be provided for. And, you know, as I mentioned, like if you're doing an agile project, it's much more difficult to have that because things are much more fluid. And often, you know, attaching some liquidated damages amounts to those milestones is going to be really important to incentivize the supplier to to hit them. I guess the other thing we would often recommend is look at the payment structure and have this concept of holdback. So, you know, hold back a certain proportion of the final charges, either for them hitting that final milestone or even later, what we often see is that holdback happening till after that sort of post-go-live support has run out and you're actually into ongoing support and maintenance so that you're really incentivizing them to fix issues that may, maybe arise after go-live, but you're still within that warranty period. And that ties back to that um, that question or that trade-off that you have about getting things fixed under warranty versus a support and maintenance arrangement where you've got SLAs, that holdback mechanism can help with that. And then the other practical thing which I would suggest customers should think about is an ability to step in. So step-in provisions take ages to negotiate and to be honest, like they very rarely get used. So what we do use these days a little bit more is this concept of you know enhanced cooperation, some type of mechanism which is short of a full step-in right but gives the customer a little bit more scope to direct the project and maybe get in a third-party consultant and depending on the trigger, you know, at, at the supplier's cost to try to get that project back on track. So, so those are a few things that I think I'd want to see in a contract from a customer's perspective to try to ensure that, you know, there are the right levers there for, for a supplier to deliver on time. Excellent. Thanks. Thanks very much, Adrian. And, you know, although this is obviously primarily a legal podcast, it's it's really great to hear such practical tips on how to deal with these software development deals and how to get the benefit of your experience um, having worked on so many of them. So I'm sure those considerations will be really helpful for, for many of our listeners who may be undertaking these type of projects, whether as part of a wider digital transformation or, or otherwise. So that brings us to the end of this episode of The Roadmap. Um, but before we go, I wanted to take the opportunity to highlight a fantastic event that we have coming up in the new year. Uh, so Bristow's Women's Network is bringing together a panel of experts to discuss the evolving role of technology in women's health. So the conversation will explore the growth of the sector uh, and its trends, how data and technology can be used to increase diversity and address the gender health gap. And also some discussions on the industry's potential, uh, as well as the key challenges that it may face. So this event is taking place on Wednesday, the 18th of January, 2023. Uh, and more information and registration details are available on our website, which is www.bristos.com. Uh, and we'll also include the link to that in, in this episode's description. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do check out our previous episodes which cover other tech law tech law related topics from procuring SaaS solutions key issues on ad tech deals and even a look at, at why and how digital transformations can go wrong and how to deal with that you can also of course subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you are using to ensure you automatically get future episodes as and when they are released so all that remains to say is thank you very much for listening and we'll be back with another episode of The Roadmap very soon. Yeah.